0: Welcome to Living Out Loud, Storytelling for Social Change, the podcast where we come together as a community to share our stories and consider alternative perspectives on a wide range of topics.
1: By sharing our stories, each and every one of us can help create the world we want to live in. Storytelling has the power to open minds, touch hearts, and inspire empathy and solidarity. It can move us to think and then act. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the faculty, staff, and student guests of each episode, but do not necessarily represent the views of Merrimack College.
0: Hi, it's Deborah Michaels, Director of Women's and Gender Studies and producer of Living Out Loud Storytelling for Social Change. It's March 2021 and next to my birthday, this is my favorite time of year, a whole month to remember and highlight the contributions of women to American history and life and to note how they experienced history as actors and agents throughout the many eras of this nation. So I'm here today with two of my colleagues, Ellen McWhorter from uh, the English Department and uh, Director of the Honors Program at Merrimack College, and Zoe Sherman, who's Chair of the Economics Department. And we're here to talk about Women's History Month. And I kind of want to start with a simple question. When I say Women's History Month, what does that mean to both of you?
1: Well, I can take take that one first, I guess. Recently, I received as a gift from my in-laws, one of the disappointments of getting married was I couldn't call them my outlaws anymore, but my in-laws gave me this gift of of the Smithsonian American History Museum's beautiful coffee table book of women's history artifacts, and there's this lovely little introduction from Jill Lepore, and she talks about visiting uh, an I think it was an early elementary classroom, it was pretty young kids and they'd been learning about the revolutionary era and American history. And they were talking about all the different people that they learned about. Um, and all of the people they mentioned were men. And so she said, well, did you learn about any women? And they sort of thought about it. And one of them said, no, there weren't any women back then.
0: Um. <laughs> oh my gosh, oh, sorry. that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Yeah, uh-
1: Right, because given the information in front of her, that was the only logical conclusion. There just must not have been any. All right. So so Women's History Month is just basically we've always been here. Right. That's that's the main message. We're always, we've always been here. And I also like to think of it in terms of our kind of mental default settings. Human is not male unless otherwise specified. Human could be anything, right? <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. I once, um, in my previous work as a, as a women's museum um, consultant, got to go into the archives of the Smithsonian and look at the stuff they had because we were selecting artifacts to put in the museum. That is, was one That was like being in your favorite grandmother's attic, only it was for all the women who came before. It was their attic. It was so much fun to touch those objects and see the stuff it's probably some of the stuff in the book that you have
1: mm-hmm. um that's amazing
0: it really was amazing i still think about that a lot ellen what do you think about when you cut when you think about women's history month
2: well i want to before i answer that question i want to turn back <laughs> to what you just said about the archives uh i think any time you're a scholar in an, an archive and you know as a literature person Uh, I went to Howard University and went into the Angelina Will Grimke archives, and this is going to relate to my answer to this question, Uh, but but being there and seeing how much amazing work this seriously undervalued and underrepresented uh, writer created and seeing seeing just how much had been put in a box and put away, uh, she's not someone who comes up in literary anthology, she should be. Uh, I'll spare you a lecture on her but anyway to get back to the question of women's history Month what I think it is for me is this month almost of recovery and I mean recovery in two different ways uh, I will not take turn this into a uh, a self-help uh, talk I swear but but recovery um in the form of of healing right of of um the, healing those literal and figurative wounds that a patriarchal society puts out there—it's uh, a time when we can we can look at our, ourselves and our colleagues and our the amazingly strong women around us and just kind of celebrate each other um, with, without question. And and um, then, the, then the second the second part of recovery relates to the archives. Uh, recovery meaning finding those lost narratives. Um, you know, uh, the ones that have been purposefully erased and the ones that are just hanging out in somebody's attic and, and basement waiting, waiting to be told. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a recovery time for me. This is, this is a great month.
0: I love this month too. When you talk about Grimke, you're talking about the abolitionist right? Angelina Grimke? So I am talking about her niece, her niece. Okay. Yeah. So yes. Is that she family, was, uh, I mean,
2: it, it was in the blood. Yes. It was, it was in the, in the heritage. Uh, but Angelina Wilhelm K is, uh, was a modernist writer. So she's a little bit post, post uh, abolition. And she, you know, she's this interesting character because she is a biracial woman who writes a lot of poetry about women and to women. And most of it, some of it is very p- passionate, really almost explicit in its coding but it also usually ends with someone dying. And we probably all know that stereotype of the, you know, the, the, the homosexual love, <laughs> love interest, the tragedy that will inevitably ensue. And she, but she kind of manipulates that to, to, to build in these really almost erotic poems. Yes, the person is going to die at the end, but you're going to take a pretty good ride by the time you get there um she's really she's fascinating and she gets sort of written she, she doesn't fit any of the boxes she's not a sentimental poet she's not a modernist per se so she gets pushed to the side so seeing you know getting into the archive and seeing her work was amazing to me and had just the the abundance of it that scholarly eyes had either ignored or, or not published
0: I think it's so important what you're saying about recovery um this you know things being put in a box, sort of set aside, hidden away, not important. I mean, we hear this over and over again, you know, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who has, you know, famously wrote the um, the um, midwife's tale, that, that diary of Martha Ballard's work as a midwife was known by historians for a long time. And Male historians refer to it as so much navel gazing, you know, like this is just minutia, There's nothing here. There's no history here. It's one of the most important books about the early period of American history to have been produced. And she spent a long time on that book and, you know, want to pull a surprise for it, as she should have. But, but that's a, a perfect example of how, as Zoe was saying before, you know, there were no women. Well, of course there were women, but you, they were sort of relegated to the realm of unimportant, you know, non-contributors. Um, I know that's why I do the work I do, that my scholarship is really about trying to resurrect the voices of women that no one's ever heard of, who did important things. I mean, my, my work for people who are listening is on the history of women's entrepreneurship. And I'm not, you know, interested so much in the big names we've all heard of as I am in the the women who were the everyday foot soldiers trying to figure out how to make a living in a world that discriminated against them, that for being women, for trying to combine motherhood and family, for being lesbian, for being trans women, for all of the ways in which women experienced um, marginalization, those are the voices I want to recover. Um, how do you feel your scholarship contributes to this idea of recovery and to and to this bigger picture of, you know, we create new knowledge um, when we do the work we do every single day. It's one of the things I tell the students in the women's history class is this is a, the projects they're doing is about creating new knowledge and not just because I read it, but because they're uncovering something and thinking about something in a new way. How do you think your teaching and scholarship does that, contributes to this world of women's history? Zoe, do you want to start
1: us? Um, I just pointed at Ellen, but uh, but I can try.
0: (laughs) Oh, I thought you were raising your hand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I was like, Ellen, go first. I have to think more. Okay, Ellen can go first. You can think more. (laughs)
2: I'm happy to talk on this because uh, it kind of relates honestly directly to my dissertation and then the things that I've tried to put out there uh, as publications since then. So literature is interesting or the field of literary studies is interesting because Uh, the literary canon has existed for so long. And then in the 1970s, this magical moment happens where women specifically, uh, academics, were like, hold on one second, right? There are no women in this. There were women during the time, echoing your earlier point, Zoe, let's find out what they were saying. And so slowly, you know, women were incorporated into at least syllabi, uh, occasionally, right? The exception, the minority percentage, but still they were starting to be talked about. And so I, I think I came into grad school uh, in, the, in the late 90s and early aughts thinking, okay, now we have the text, but we can't read them the same way that we read the male dominated narratives. So the question that I've been pursuing, right? And the question that I bring up in most of my classes is how do we understand the way that meaning is being made in in particular in literature, right? In this fiction and in this poetry, what are the authors saying? Uh, What are they hinting at? What are they being uh, conspicuously quiet about? And then how do we put that together into understanding what their experiences really were, given the confines and the pressures on them. And so the first person that comes to my mind is you know, there's this bizarro poem, uh, well, bizarro to, to most people, written by Mina Loy, a quite famous modernist. And it's called The Love Songs to Johannes. Okay, Nominally, like The Love, love Songs to Johannes. So you expect something kind of romantic. And it, it's a, it's, it has, the poem has many parts, but it starts off with this image of Pig Cupid. And goes on to have this really grotesque uh, references to mucus membranes, really kind of disgusting. Uh, not what you ex- would expect from a love story. And a lot of you know earlier male critics have looked at this and been like, well, you know, she's trying to trash love. She's trying to trash, you know, this idea of romance. And sure, there's an element of that that's there. But if you put it in the greater context, and this is this is what this is something that I spent literally years unpacking this poem. You see that what she's really critiquing is. Uh, Ways of knowing that privilege rationality and reason over heart. So she's hitting scientific language detached from feeling really hard and you and you feel it right it's foregrounded. But for a while I had to sit there going, what is she doing, right, how do I understand this without bringing in uh, the, the ways that I've been trained that would privilege certain points over others. Right. And so I don't know i I, I like that puzzle element uh, to to finding women's narratives and then understanding them and unpacking them and doing them justice the justice they should have been given in the first place. It sounds too like
0: we when we do the work we do we especially your work it, it's about you mentioned silences and, and also reading between the lines and this new lens that you're bringing that if women weren't doing this work or those of us who care about women's voices weren't doing this work to we would not, we'd get only one lens. We get the patriarchal lens. We get the lens that privileges some narratives over others. We wouldn't get this deeper understanding of women's lives, women's experiences, what this must mean to have walked in, in their petticoats or their shoes or whatever they were wearing (laughs) at the time. Um, It's so important.
2: It's, you know, right. I mean, it's just so important. And at the risk of being reductive, you know, this idea that uh, in any given moment, someone who is oppressed or disenfranchised will have different experiences and see uh, different different perspectives on things. The, just the idea of that, that women have a kind of knowledge, and again, I, I apologize for the gross generalizations, but that our stories and our ways of seeing things actually add to the field of knowledge. Right, that we bring uh, perspectives that help expand what it means to know and and to, to to be wise about something and to deeply understand. And I can only imagine that that works in economics too. Uh, you know, they're at the risk of saying women's ways of knowing, which is a you know, <laughs> there, there 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 is something something uh, that being disenfranchised I think helps you see more clearly.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Um listening to you talk was helping me organize my thoughts too. So uh, I have a a teaching example and a research example that I can talk about. Um, So recently, I taught a history of economic thought class for the first time. And I hadn't taught this subject before. So I was looking at other syllabi and seeing what people had done. And all of the syllabi I found, even ones from leftists, even ones that were critical and radical in all kinds of interesting ways, had no women in them, like none, none at all. And um, it was making me crazy. So I, I had to think about how to construct this syllabus, this body of reading to say, okay, the profession of economics was really uh, successful at excluding women, but that doesn't mean women don't think about the economy. Right? So, um, so I had to find things to to read with my students that were about the economy, they were about economic issues and concerns, but the writers had not been recognized as economists, had not been able to take that professional title um, for reasons that had nothing to do with the quality of their thought right, and in everything to do with the exclusions of the discipline. Um, and, and that was a really, uh, a really interesting and productive way, uh, I think, for me to learn the subject, and I hope for my students also. Um, so, so there's, there's one example. Uh, in my own historical research, uh, when you first invited me to join this, Deborah, I thought, I don't know, I'm, I feel like I might be a faker here, because gender is not my entry point. It's not the first category that I use. Um, I'm a political economist, I think about class, so position in relation to ownership of of assets and and labor processes. Um, I I spend a lot of time thinking about commodification as a process, how does something come to be treated as property? How do you build a market that allows people to trade property? Um, And gender isn't the first lens. Um, But as I was thinking about the way I do this work, gender is always an important part of the toolkit so one of the um one of the major topics that i have spent a lot of time researching is how the advertising industry modernized and started to treat audiences like a property that could be traded right advertisers buy access to attention from audiences and i was looking at how this started to arise and one example of how gender really matters here is advertising professionals wanted to present themselves to potential clients by saying, um, we have this kind of mastery over over audiences. We can use these tools of scientific management that were like a big thing in the early 20th century in production places. They were saying, we can do scientific advertising. We have this kind of insight into how audiences work and we can manipulate them and we can make them serve your bidding in really efficient ways. their construction of that understanding was a very gendered construction. We are rational, we are men, right? This is a masculine quality, our rationality. Consumers are women, right? So we can, we can trigger all of their responses without their conscious critique, right? We're the ones who are conscious. Um, and of course, that's not a neat binary line. They knew that there were men who were also consumers, right? They. they um, Sometimes they would recognize that they didn't actually know how to talk to women and hire a woman to do the copywriting. <laughs> like there were all kinds of cracks in this construction, but, but they used gendered categories to understand other binaries that they were trying to construct in their, in their knowledge about the world.
0: That's so fa- fascinating. I-, I remembered hearing you talk about this. That's why you were invited to this conversation, because <laughs> I I don't think that gender has to be the first or primary lens. I think I think about the example you gave about your um, course says it all for me in some ways, and, and your research and your course follow a similar path, that it has to be in the toolkit. We can't forget this important segment of our population and in all of its formations in race and ethnicity and, you know, gender identity, sexuality and all of its formations and class, of course. Um, Because otherwise you get that, you know, history of economic thought course that that doesn't even acknowledge women as there in any way, shape or form. I mean, it makes a huge difference when you, when you switch the lens, when you say, okay, right. Um, now, for me, gender is the primary tool in the toolkit. I can't do anything without starting from gender. But, but I think you know, different, different more, it's different disciplines come at it differently. I think it's so important that you're it is in the toolkit, um, for every discipline.
2: I think that also speaks to great strides that are being made uh, for for. St- studies of women's history, women's experiences being fundamentally intersectional, right? I mean, thank you, women of color feminists who, who helped white, a white woman like myself understand the, the intersectionality of everything, right? You can't think about gender without thinking about race, without thinking about economy. And so maybe one is is the entry point, but the reality is it, everything splinters off and they're all coming together to create this picture uh, that, that that the more we know, the more full the picture can be.
0: It's so important. I completely agree with you. You know, when I first started this work and in, in, when I was in grad school, um, and I was a journalist and I just thought I wanted to be a better, smarter journalist. So I, you know, I ended up in this profession so by accident, it's almost embarrassing um, because I just thought, you know, I was working in New York at Women's Wear Daily and NYU was down the street. So I thought, I'll go to NYU because it's down the street. Um, be, and I knew myself well enough to know that on a rainy night, I or a cold night, I was I would cut class, you know, after working all day because I was going to school initially part time, um, and I thought I was doing women's studies, which is what it was called at the time. But they only had women's history at the graduate level, so I thought, all right, I'll do women's history. Same thing, right? It's not. It's so not. Fell in love with women's history, and one day in grad school. Um, we, they asked us what we thought we were doing and what our goals were. Like, why are you here? What are you doing? And as I said, I started off thinking I'd just be a better, smarter journalist. But by the time I was asked that question, I was full on becoming an academic. And I said that I thought I was becoming an insurgent and that I absolutely saw what I was doing as an insurgent act. And I feel that even now that, that as a writer of women's history, and gender history as a, as a, as a teacher of those things, that it is every day an insurgent act to, and, you know, and I'm always in touch, Ellen, you mentioned the sort of seventies kind of moment when, when the seventies feminists kind of came to consciousness about um, they've got these degrees and they never learned anything about women or people of color for that matter. and many of them decided to burn their, their diplomas. I mean, they were burning their PhDs in protest because they felt they had learned nothing about themselves. Um, I don't know that I could do that. Every time I think of that story, I think about how painful and hard it was and, you know, to earn that diploma. Um, but I also didn't, didn't come of age in a world where I learned nothing about, about a whole segments of the population. So I'm always in touch with the fact that it once upon a time and not that long ago, um, it was, not just an insurgent act to teach, but to be sitting in those classrooms as well. The first women's and gender studies classes, the first women's history classes. I mean, women's history has a history and that is, is that is its history as an academic discipline. It was also a way for us to have jobs in the academy um, when women weren't hired as much in in some of those fields. Um, so I think about that um, every day. What? What new knowledge do you want to see in the world around issues of women and gender? What do you want our students to think about and our community to think about this month as we celebrate Women's History Month?
2: So uh, last night, I, I watched the movie Moxie on Netflix. Has anyone seen this yet or heard of it? No. Okay, no. so this was a recommendation. I got a text from a former student saying, I just read a young adult novel. that that's, They're turning into a show on Netflix, excuse me, a movie on Netflix. You're going to love this. Uh, she's usually right. So uh, last night, I watched it. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but this is uh, a coming-of-age Ins, female insurgency right, right coming together film uh to carry the 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 language from the from your recent comments Deborah uh and so I think I've got this on on the brain today. It's definitely related to Moxie, but just this idea that it's not new knowledge, but it is something that we are constantly told to forget, and that's that when women come together and support each other, almost unconditionally, when we come together, we are powerful. And that there's no experience that we're having that even when we feel guilty or isolated or or broken, you know, we are not alone. And so it just, it left me sort of feeling that, 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 that you know, we can... We know this, right? We can refuse to be pitted against each other, even in the academy, even in life. We can refuse, uh, and from that refusal, uh, and that refusal to to be quiet, and the refusal to not just love each other, uh, we can do some pretty powerful things united. Wow, that is such a great message. I love. Watch that. the movie. <laughs> watch the
0: movie. <laughs> Clearly, you were inspired.
2: I'm gonna have to watch the movie. I think I know what I'm doing this weekend. Uh, wow. Yeah, I'm not kidding you. I mean, it reminds, its so you're watching, these are high schoolers, right? And you're watching this kind of forming consciousness, this realization that things, the ways that women are treated in, in this case in a high school setting are terrible. And you see them pitted against each other and you see this core group kind of come together and go, no, we're not going to take it anymore. And it expands and expands and expands. And, you know, the risk of, of giving any spoilers, there's a, a climax to the film that will leave you with goosebumps. And it has to do with women coming together and just saying, I got you. Right? Instead of the things that we do. And that's what I, you know, I can't wait for next week. I swear, the moment I can start hugging people, y'all better be ready because I'm, I'm coming around. I'm coming around with them. I hear you. I'm right there with you. I will stand
0: at the front of that line for my hug for sure. <laughs> I think this is such an important message, Ellen, especially right now when we see so much divisiveness in our country and people don't come together. And there's, you know, divisiveness among women. I mean, when I teach the women's history class, I'm always telling students that, you know, some, the way i think about women's history it is always a battle over what women's roles are supposed to be and women writ large all of the women in our society and the battle occurs between women as much as it does between women and the rest of society that we often disagree with each other about what's acceptable for us to be and to do and to become and um and so and i see that a lot especially in moments like the one we're living through, Um, you know, and all the challenges I think the pandemic has created for for women um, and for the future of women as uh, leaders and workers, because we're seeing who's dropping out of the workforce in large numbers and it's, right, talented women. Um, So, yeah, I think it's important to remember, as you just said, especially this month, because this is, you know, I think of this month as sort of our celebration. It's our party. Um, it's our chance to shine. I think it's its important to remember exactly what you said, that when women come together, it it can be quite powerful um, and that unity is, is far more important than the divisions between us.
2: And that's not to say, you know, I think um, I, I'm catching myself right now as you're you're saying this I'm thinking, you know, I'm not saying, right, that you can't disagree with people or people don't need to be taken to task occasionally or grow. Right. But that's part of that's part of this kind of expanded. What would you like the world to look like? What would you like new knowledge uh, to look like? Wouldn't it be amazing, too, if we really could understand that we're all coming from. And I don't mean us. You know, we've studied this, uh, but but everybody could come from the idea that we're all we're all colored by our experiences. We're all colored. We've all got shortcomings, right? We've all got lessons to learn. And and if we could call each other out gently on things privately, <laughs> right? And then come together and say, you know, it doesn't matter if we disagree on whether you should breastfeed or not. Like it doesn't really like I'm that matters. And it's a side conversation. But right now, I'm just here to support you, right? I'm just here to help you uh, and and you know form that unity that that makes change.
0: Talking about calling each other out privately, I think is a sort of, I think it's a reference to social media and to all of the ways people call each other out for every everything, right? That ends up leading to bigger divisions um, than that support. You know, I'm gonna get ridiculously nostalgic, even though I was way too young to know about any of this stuff. I I I miss that we don't do the kinds of consciousness raising sessions that the early feminists did, you know, where they would sit around and they would just talk and talk about whatever it was that was going on, you know, their careers, their their relationships, their families, the world, the harassment they got on the street that day, whatever it was. And that's where they found commonality across difference is that in that room, when 10 people would come together under what you're talking about, Ellen, this sort of rubric of support, despite our differences, yes, we can gently call each other out, but we can also admit that there is some solidarity around this stuff. Um, I, I kind of miss that. It's it, it, you know, it, it went mainstream, and then it became part of psycho, you know, psychological sort of therapy culture, and then it just kind of, like many of the great things that came out of that moment in history, it disappeared. Um, you know, I'm still longing for feminist bookstores to come back. So, you know, <laughs> so there's <sad. laughs> that because they were also community centers. I mean, you would go and sit and you'd have a coffee, you'd run into a woman, you'd talk about, you know, life and books and friendship and and coalition building, which is lost when you have those kinds of meetings as well. You can't, you can't begin to organize um, in quite the same way. So Um, Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation with both of you, and I appreciate the time that you've spent today and any closing thoughts that you want to leave with our audience about how to celebrate this incredible Women's History Month or a person you think they should look into, a a hero of yours or or
1: anything else? Um, hmm, Well, I guess my my closing thought is for all kinds of subjects um since as i mentioned right for me gender isn't usually the entering topic it's one of the tools in my toolkit but it's not usually the tool that i lead with um and i work in a discipline where a lot of the knowledge is is gendered male and then not recognized as gendered at all right and so um so i guess what I what I like to ask people to do is look at what your sources are. Who's missing from your list? Right? Sure, everything that you have in your source list, they might have lots of interesting things to say, lots of important ideas. Um, probably there's some things missing.
2: Great point. That is just that's brilliant, and that's that's a perfect that's a perfect ending to any conversation. That's right. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that is exactly right. Well, thank you both. I hope we have a wonderful Women's History Month um, and and then hope everyone who's listening to this carries those thoughts with them throughout this month and throughout the rest of the year. Thank you both for being with me today.
1: Thanks so much, much. Deborah. Got
0: an idea for an episode or want to join our team? Email us at livingoutloud at merrimac.edu.
2: Executive Producers are Deborah Michaels and Tiffany Begensterns, Audio Engineering and Editing by Michael Senoff.
1: Living Out Loud is made possible with the generous support of a Provost Innovation Grant and assistance from the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning.